hey, just jumping in here quickly because I'm really excited to share that I've just launched something brand new. It's called the Smell Gym. This is the place to exercise your sense of smell. I've got online classes for everyone, no matter your ability to smell or not to smell. As you know by now, I'm really passionate about our sense of smell, and I want everyone to have the healthiest, most robust ability to smell possible. I invite you to go to my website, smellgym.com, and check out what might be the best fit for you. Hello, and welcome to An Aromatic Life. Did I get you in the mood? Can you sense that salty, minerally, maybe a little bit earthy smell in the air? Today we're stepping out of the studio and we're gonna take a trip to the California coast. We're gonna head to Pacifica. But we're not gonna be talking about oceans or beaches, although I should do an episode about that one day. No, we're gonna visit a favorite coffee shop of mine called Soul Grind that sits right at the beach and is a favorite spot for surfers and skaters alike. They have the most amazing coffee and they roast the beans right there on site. And it got me thinking about what role our sense of smell might play in the roasting process. Where does it fit in, in terms of smelling and evaluating for quality? I mean, those of us who love coffee, we sure know how to savor a flavorful cup, right? Getting the roasting right is a huge part of that very pleasurable experience. So I grabbed my microphone and I went to see the head coffee roaster there. His name is Eddie. And I asked him to take me through the roasting process. He described the process to me, and he also shared what he looks for during each phase of the roasting process specifically. He also revealed what he found to be the most difficult as a boutique roaster. After all, he's no Starbucks, right? And that has its advantages, but also disadvantages for sure. We also had a chance to talk about coffee culture and how much it's changed over the years, not only here in California, but around the US and the world. And he shared how his world turned upside down after he lost a sense of smell for a while when he got COVID after a hospital procedure. So I do want to apologize that the audio may be a little different because I am on location. We recorded inside the cafe, which is where the roasting takes place. So you might notice a little difference in quality, but I want to thank you for your patience with that. I think you're really going to find everything he shares here really interesting. So I won't hold you up any longer. Enjoy my conversation with Soul Grind's coffee roaster, Eddie, and maybe have a cup of java while you listen. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. So before we dive into the conversation, I thought I'd share a few fun facts about coffee. And I'll start with the name. 
So the name coffee was originally called kahawa. It's an Arabic word referring to a type of wine derived from the verb kaha, which means appetite suppressant. And this evolved to kave in Ottoman Turkish and then coffee in Dutch before arriving at coffee, which is what us English speakers say today. And here's something I found interesting. Coffee was originally chewed. In fact, today, raw coffee beans soaked in water and spices are still chewed like candy in many parts of Africa. Of course, most of us drink coffee, right? Each year, the world consumes roughly 10 billion kilos of coffee, with Arabica making up 60% of the world coffee production, followed by Robusta at around 40%. It's believed that coffee is one of the most consumed drinks in the world with the Netherlands having the highest per capita consumption, followed by Finland and then Sweden. The U.S. sits all the way at 14th place in terms of per capita consumption, but we consume the most coffee in the world as a whole in total volume. More than 400 million cups of coffee are consumed in the U.S. every day. And I thought this was interesting. The most effective time to consume coffee is between 9.30 a.m., at 11.30 a.m. in the morning. From a caffeine boost perspective, this is when your cortisol levels drop from their morning peak. As for the coffee itself, coffee beans are actually coffee seeds. They were renamed because of their resemblance to beans. And coffee is a fruit. Roasted coffee is a complex mixture of over 1,000 bioactive compounds. And as soon as you start grinding the coffee beans, the complex flavor notes start to diminish. Interestingly, that decaf coffee you like to drink, I know I do, it actually still contains caffeine. To legally be called decaf, the coffee has to contain 97% less than the original caffeine content of the coffee bean. So you still have about 3% caffeine content. When it comes to growing coffee, coffee trees can last up to 100 years, and they take around five years to gain maturity. Today, over 70 countries cultivate coffee. Honestly, there's so many cool facts about coffee. I could go on and on, but I won't. I'll just leave you with a few last ones and then I'll stop. <laughs> Here's a good one. In 1674, British women tried to ban coffee. Yes, the women's petition against coffee claimed the beverage was turning British men into useless corpses and proposed a ban on it for anyone under the age of 60. I thought that was funny. Oh, and Beethoven was a fussy coffee drinker. He loved his coffee, but insisted that every cup be brewed with exactly 60 coffee beans. And according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the oldest cat ever, on record, drank coffee every day. The 30-year-old cat named Cream Puff supposedly drank coffee for breakfast every morning. And the first ever webcam was actually created to film coffee. Computer science students at Cambridge University became tired of walking up and down the corridor to find the coffee pot empty. So they rigged a camera to a computer so all the departments were able to see if the coffee pot was full. I thought you'd enjoy these fun facts about coffee. Okay, let's get into the conversation now with Eddie. I began by asking him how he got started learning how to roast. I'm pretty much self-taught, actually, but I did go over to Oakland and 
kind of mentor through some of the guys over in Oakland that were roasting for us. Kava Conti and Red, Red Bay Coffee was the first people. They were roasting for me, as well as Andy Town in the city. Those two roasters were very helpful in my learning process. But as far as getting in and jumping into the deep end and treading water, it was pretty much my own doing. I ended up pretty much just learned coffee. I think understanding coffee. Meaning like the taste or everything. The, the, everything. The smell, the taste, how to make it, what you're where it's coming from, what temperatures, all of the all the ins and outs to actually being a barista or being on the front end of coffee got me interested in actually learning the back end of coffee, which is where more of a production style part of it. So to me, that's it's, I think if you went the other way, like if you were a roaster first and didn't have the background to understanding what the final product is to the customer, it might be a little trickier actually, from my perspective. Yeah. Because knowing what you like, like say I went to Italy, lived in Italy for two <laughs> years, I learned what I liked. And I came back here and tried to find what I liked. Very difficult. So getting into the coffee business and learning what actual coffee is to the palate and to the senses, having the experience of what I liked and knowing then how to actually make what I liked gave me this avenue or a platform to learn actually what they were doing to get it there, which is the roaster's job. Right. It's the grower's job as well. There's a lot of crossover in coffee making and wine industry. I was just going to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that's come closer as in the last 10, 15 years. I don't, historically, I don't know how close it was back in the day, but I know in the last 10, 15 years, it's gotten a lot closer as far as what they do in the farming processes, whether it be trellising the tree, coffee trees, like in the vineyard of the grape okay. vines. But it, as far as taste, smell, the senses, roasting, crushing, destemming, those things are all very synonymous. They all work together in understanding what it is the final product is. So for me, it was just a learning process, learning how what coffee is, learning what I liked, and then applying that to the roasting. And I'm still learning. I'm still a student in the game. However, I do know what I like. And I've gotten <laughs> to a point now after four years of being able to dial in some of the profiles that Soulgrind uses and then shares with the other stores as well as just basically who my customers all yeah, are. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And I don't do too much drastic changes to that because it's been working. Right. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Um, I do have some people that are very way more advanced in this game than me. And so they'll come in and they'll critique and they'll give me some input on what to do. Can I ask you, would you say, because it's all about flavor, right? It's taste, yeah. flavor, it's yeah. mouthfeel. Like, what are the key things yeah, that you're mean, looking for? You know, it's interesting because, I mean, if you're looking at through the book and you read the book and the book tells you these things, well, to me what it comes down to is the experience and it comes down to everyone's own personal right. joy and what they're getting out of coffee or tea or yeah. hot chocolate. Right. I mean, they're all, it's an experience. So in the, from what I know in the coffee game is that your senses like drinking wine. Once again, like drinking wine, you're drinking coffee. You're allowing your senses to get to know or understand what you're actually putting in it. And I think that coffee is unique in that there's so many different levels of that. I mean, as a roaster, it, it's vital that you have the three senses. You have the smell. Right. You've got the okay. sound. Oh, the sound. And the sight. So those three things are vital because when you're roasting, you're smelling the coffee and there's these different places in 
the, the process, kind process of, like, yeah. of roasting of the, the molecular change that happened. There's the turn, there's the dry end, there's the mallard reaction, and then there's first crack. Okay. Within the, each one of those different places, there's what's called grass, hay, bread, and I like to call it like kind of cookies, and then coffee. So the smelling is a big part of it, and then yeah. you're smelling for hay, or you're smelling for grass, or you're smelling for cookies or bread. So if you don't have a program or an application that yeah. actually guides you through that visually. Okay. So without all the new technology, you just take a roaster, put the coffee in there, and you're going to need to use your senses just to actually perform a decent cup of coffee. And those are the levels. So we now have bridges that allow us to see the graph and see where we're at. But still, you have to use your smell, Trust you have your senses, to use your sight, yeah, you have yeah. to use your sound to get to find these levels. So it's really cool. That is very cool. So should we kind of go through what the process is? Sure, can you can take me through that? Yeah, I can totally do that. So we have, a, we have green beans from different parts of the world. That's Just, really important, right? Just the, the ingredients that you're using. First yeah, of there's all, a the whole <laughs> full-time job for the green Sourcing. buyer. <laughs> the green buyer, his job is to go find green coffee and analyze it and it, they call it a green grater so that's that's the actual title for that person he's a green grater and what he'll do is learn exactly what's going on with this type of bean he can see this green bean right here this is an ethiopian sidamu and he can look at that and say this is a, what type of quality it is based on its densities there's tools for this we don't really have the high-end tools for this but there's a lot of like cowboy tools you can use to grade green coffee without the high-end tools because back in the day they didn't have the tools to grade so there's imperfections in coffee and so you look for the least amount of imperfections you, you look for a higher elevation coffee bean that tends to do better over the course of, of sitting so as well as when you roast it and when you drink it the higher elevation coffees tend from my experience tend to be better so there's a whole job within the green grading thing once you've decided which green you want for your coffee and for the profile that you're going to use comes to the shop we weigh it out, then we charge up the roaster, and the roaster has a charge temperature, and that charge temperature is connected to which type of the coffee type of I'm bean. roasting. Okay. Can Whether, I ask you, is this an Arabica? This is Arabica, yeah. Arabica, okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is the most, it's the highest end one, is that? Yeah, Arabica's a higher end. There's, I mean, within the different varietals of coffee, there's different types of coffee. There's Katura, there's Robusta, there's different types of the actual coffee plant coming from different things. And they kind of theorize that all coffee comes from a Robusta plant, ah. and that Arabica was an taken offshoot. and, not really an offshoot, but like renamed it Arabica. And I think that happened back when the African coffees moved across the sea to Yemen and to the um, Arabic countries, where they were able to market it and, and turn it into what's called Arabic coffee. But that's all a whole historical thing. I'm not an expert on that. But anyway, so what I do is I get the green, I decide which green I like. That green coffee has, I then create a profile for it, which means I need a charge temperature, which is what I do to charge this machine up. I charge it up, and then for this coffee, there's a number for charge number. And then once it gets to that charge, I put it in the hopper, the green goes into the top hopper, it goes into the roaster, and we have our drum roaster, which is steel. You can see it move running around in there. It goes into the drum roaster, and then the process starts of it drying out. And okay. these two, this cold coffee and this hot drum have to come to a happy place. 
And so when they meet, the temperatures go down. When they get to the bottom, they turn, and then they just then they start to heat up together. Once you get to the point where the coffee bean has now said, I'm basically dried out, the dry end phase, it's gonna start to cook at that point, which in that case, there's some minor adjustments that you make with temperature to get the coffee to respond to what you want it to do. And then once you get through the dry end, you start to go through the mallard reaction, which is like, the best way I could describe it, I guess, is onions. If you were to try this, it's acidic and tannic, tannics, and doesn't taste like coffee at all. However, once you get to the mallard reaction, that chemically and molecularly, that structure changes and it starts to get turn into sweet. So it goes from that to sweet, like an onion, like cooking onions. It starts out, you bite into an onion, it's like, oh my God. But the minute you saute them, all of a sudden it's this beautiful, (laughs) sweet thing. Very similar as far as that mallard reaction is concerned. Once you get past that, you're looking for the sound comes in and it's first crack. And you want the bean gets so wound up and so ready and it just can't hold all that energy inside and it releases that energy and that's called first crack. And from that, yeah, and from that point, you just want to be on the machine. You want to be your nose on there and you want to be smelling because after first crack, generally speaking, because now there's some new theories about prior to first crack and a more green coffee type of flavor profiling where you're not roasting it past some of those chemical changes. You're actually dropping it prior. For me, in my experience, I've stuck to the old ways, which is pretty much get it through these changes, get it through these stages, and then... Once you get the first crack, you start to use your nose and your sight to see the color change. You see also the smell change, and you're looking for what I like to kind of get into the sugary, brown sugary smells and things that change in your nose. So when you're smelling it all the way through the process, you're smelling those changes, which we talked about earlier, which are the grass phase. So it smells like wet grass. That's the first phase? Pretty much the first smell change phase. This green smell of just what it's kind of like a very non-distinct green coffee smell it goes into this grass real wet grassy smell then it goes into this hay smell like it's just hay then it gets out of the hay phase and it gets into this bread phase it starts to smell all of a sudden like you're cooking bread or cookies or something like that Uh, not even yeasty more like bread or cookies like really like a smell like you're in baking something in the oven not so much yeasty, but like because yeasty is more to me is more pre-cooked. Okay, smelling right, a little right, bit more right. pre-cooked, but more finished. Yeah, a little bit sweeter smell to it. Nice. And then after that, you're starting to smell for things that you're looking for in your final cup of coffee, which is a little bit more specific. And that's kind of a little bit more where the roasters kind of keep their techniques in their pocket. They don't really share that aspect of it. However, in the roasting community, it's a pretty family-based community. I mean, up until a certain point where the recipes, the blends, sure. the, the numbers of where you are and your and how what temperatures you're using in time and air, that all kind of stuff is a little bit more secretive. I don't even know why but it is but I think a lot of it comes down to just good and if you have good coffee you don't want everyone to have goods because then your people would go somewhere else right. so I want them to come here so I'm like hey I better keep that to myself but I'm not a stickler towards that I just, I'm, like I said I'm still learning so uh, and then once it's done and you've decided you drop it into the cooling tray it cools you want it to cool down pretty quick one of the first guys that helped me on this machine is Brent Kennedy and the Kennedy brothers own San Franciscan, which is out of Carson City, Nevada. 
one of the things I remember from what he said, oh, you don't want to burn it and you don't want to bake it. Those are the two things you don't want to do. Right. And that stuck with me because as a early on in, in roasting, I had to figure out what that really meant. And I do know what that means now because baking it is not good at the end game and burning it's obviously not good either. So, um, and there's subtleties to that as well. So. You haven't mentioned taste at all. So, are you tasting at all during this process? No. No. There's no taste. No. Like, I would have thought there would be some no. tasting involved to no. see how it's coming along. Tasting comes post roast. You just trust that the roasting process. Well, you once you have it down, I guess. There's you know? sampling. Yeah. Okay. Prior to going into the larger batches, you have a sample machine. Got it. Okay. And so you're going to sample on a this, this green on a maybe like 50 grams. Some people use a pound. Um, and then what you do after you sample it is you cup it, and okay. so you're cupping process. Okay, so what does that mean? Slurping. You're okay, basically slurping, slurping like wine tasting. Coffee, <laughs> yeah. like coffee with the grounds in there, and you spoon it out, and you slurp it, and then you take different notes from different types of roast profiles, and you all agree to disagree on which one you like and which one you don't like, and then you decide which one you want to move forward with on the larger machine. Ah, good. And so. That's kind of it. Like I said, there's always a cowboy way of doing that. You could chew up the coffee in, in your mouth and salivate that coffee in your mouth. Is what Brant was telling me. It's funny. Like, you can just chew it up and tell what's going on. You don't need to cup it. But anyway, it's pretty funny. But that's true, too. But it's better to cup the coffee and have everybody that's any barista that's out there or anybody that's making coffee here to actually understand what it is they're tasting and then how to convey that to the customer if the customer has questions. Because as we all know, in the Bay Area, customers are pretty educated in the coffee. And they, a lot of the time, they know more about it than the people that are serving it. Yeah, um, yeah. We try to do our best to make sure that everybody here is highly trained, at least at the point where they can answer questions, both in the second wave, third wave, and some of them in the fourth wave of coffee. That helps. So. Question for you, you do the decaf as well, right? So you do the regular, you know, the single origin? Yeah, pretty blends. much it comes, the decaf <laughs> comes from a single origin. However, you know, the secrets of the decaf, unless I go back and go look where it is, I don't really know if it's coming from there or not. You have to trust your sources. Sources is a big thing in the business right now. Third-party sourcing and brokers and direct relationships with farmers and trips eventually we'll probably like to make trips and go down into these farms and places where we're getting the coffee and have relationships with them I'm not there yet i'm not big enough that for that yet i'm still on the roaster in the shop doing my thing here but yeah like your decaf's an interesting one it comes green however it's already decaffeinated when it comes here so i'm not doing any of the decaffeination the beans decaffeinated so it's the, then it comes down to which decaf i like and right now, I like to think that I have the best decaf in 25-mile radius. I buy it every week. Yeah. Oh, the thank whole, you. Yeah, yeah, thank the whole... You. Awesome. Like so you like four it? Four packs. You I love like it. it. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, cool. It's my but, afternoon And the coffee. thing is, I started drinking it a little bit more regularly than I would have 15 years ago. So with that and being that I'm in charge of roasting it, I kind of had to like it. <laughs> of course. And so the other places I've been... I won't even name names, but most of the ways I've been that no one's really focused on the decaf that much. And so it comes out that way to me where you can have it as an espresso or as a pour over and then not be too so harsh or that you can taste that it's a decaf. And there's a lot of people that could tell you right out of the gate between three cups of coffee. That's decaf. My nephew can tell he's pretty good at it. And it just comes down to understanding your palate 
understanding, having experience with your nose and your palate. And, and paying attention. You know, and knowing what that taste and that flavor yeah. profile is. But I, I try to do a good job with, with that decaf so that way it, it translates to the customer's experience because a lot of people that drink decaf. Me included, you included. So we both drink it. I don't drink it all the time, but I drink it in between. So it's like my filler coffee. So right. I have one real coffee in the morning. Me too. Then I go to decaf. Yeah. And then in the afternoon, I'll go back to one real coffee, depending on how late it is. And if not, I'll just stay with decaf. So. Right, right, right. Another question for you. So what do you think is the most difficult part of the roasting process? Like, what's the thing that could trip you up the most? Where do you have to pay attention um, the most? I think... I think the overall concept of being able to go from sampling to translating what you sample to the roaster, uh, the large-scale roasting, so you're going from a small 50 grams to 24.5 pounds of coffee, mm. is probably the trickiest thing that I've found right now. I still don't think that I have that down. I think that I'm learning how to do that. But luckily, when I came into this here at this shop, it was, like I said, it was kind of like jumping into the deep end. And it's sink or swim. And so I had to learn on the larger machine how to get the coffee to where I needed it to be without too much sampling. And so there were some bumps in the road, but I think that's probably the hardest thing. I think the other part of roasting that's hard is to not have a fire. Fire is a huge part of roasting. And, okay. it, and I remember Kaba telling me in the very beginning, we went out to want to hit the roasters that he had that he was roasting for us and I visited their roaster and I went in and I saw it on the side was this big burn on the side of the bottom of the cooling tray underneath and I was like wow and I just looked at that I was like oh my god it looked like something happened there and I was like okay. and then every time I've gone anywhere I've always seen some type of scar on the machine or a burn somewhere or something along the lines and it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when and honestly it's true and if you're not diligent in your cleaning you're not diligent on the machine when you have the fire on and you are roasting it will happen okay it's a very volatile type of process because you have a very light flammable it's called chaff and it's a very flammable shell Can you describe it to the listeners like here, we're we looking at like what's called the silver skin of the coffee ah. and so the plant goes through a bunch of different processes once it's picked off the coffee tree it's a cherry then it's got the outer cherry that dries out and then it's got an inner these inner layers of pulp and different types of linings when you get the green the green still looks as if it's pretty clean but as it roasts it starts to shed these layers of what's called silver skin or chaff and that chaff is like the best fire starting ember starting material you could ever find i mean anywhere and so then you've got a you know your burners depending on whether you're naturally wood burning roaster or you're a gas burning roaster or you're an electric burning roaster you have to control the temperature and the ember from igniting the rest of the roaster not only is there chaff that there's also a residual oil or a residual type of soot that inlines entire I guess it would be all your vents and all your out exhaust situations that are in here and so you can see in the sight glass right there there's a kind of a black oil that's created yeah. that's specifically from roasting coffee that that glass is ready to be cleaned so when I'm done roasting I'll take this glass off and I'll scrape off that oil so I can see in there 
that also is very dangerous if something like that catches on fire. So you have something that can light the fire and then you have with the heat and the chap and then you have something that'll actually keep the fire going. And so it's just being diligent. Yeah. It's not necessarily hard. It's just a little, it's always worrisome, a little anxiety based to make sure that when you're roasting, you're paying attention to your temperatures and you're, you're paying attention to sight and smell. If you see smoke, you got to know calmly how to deal with the smoke deal with where it's coming from and why and so there's all these vents and these flues that take the air hot air take the cold air and move it around and that's difficult too but just making good coffee i think oh, in general being consistent that's another hard thing about coffee roasting is where your beans are coming from and if they're not from the same spot making sure that the customer doesn't have this dramatic change in their flavor profile they end up getting the same at least the same zone of like, wow, that's good. They're not like, oh, that's different than yesterday. I'd rather them say that's good or better. <laughs> better than is saying always like, a good wow, thing. something's different today, and not having a ha understanding of why it's different. And that's a challenge. A lot of roasters, particularly boutique roasters, tend to be challenged by consistency. And that's why it's good to have a profiling tool like I have. Uh, this computer is a bridge. It allows me to use Artisan, and it monitors everything, and it shows me the graph of exactly where I'm at with time, temperature, um, the environment temperature, the bean temperature. And so that allows me across the larger batching okay. to be a little bit more consistent. But once again, we go back to the, it's pretty much up to the me and smelling and watching and making sure that it's I'm what consistent. what you know in your Yeah, there's a lot, brain. exactly. Yeah. And just being consistent across the large batch. That's probably the third thing that's challenging. You mentioned something just earlier, which I thought was interesting, is that you have different heat sources depending on your heat source. So that would impact the flavor profile, right? Just yeah. like when you store wine in different yeah. barrels, type of oak or yeah. whatever. It's yeah. the same kind of thing, right? Yeah, it is. I think that the main thing is that the coffee coming from different parts of the world That's are going to dictate yeah. specifically how you uh, manipulate them in the roaster and what temperatures and the time and the air and what those... Um, elements do for you for your final product so no one profile is really the same here when i'm working with different origins from different places they have different they like certain things some african beans like a higher uh, charge temperature and central american beans like a lower charge temperature. I mean, stuff like that really impacts yes the the outcome of your flavors profile There's all the roasting and all that, and then you have your finished product, but then there's also how you're going to make the coffee now, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that yeah. impacts how you oh, decide yeah. how you're going to roast, because here at this store, you do pour-over mostly, correct? Or no, you do we other? mainly espresso, but oh, mainly we espresso. have both okay. pour-over and espresso, and yeah. But and there's a reason for that. Yeah, I think that generally speaking, like you have a place like Phil's Coffee, and they do just pour-overs, and you got places in the around the North Beach that just do espresso. However, my upbringing, I came through the blue bottle training, you know, a long time ago and then kind of graduated into my own understanding of what coffee is and what the experience is for the person. And I feel like because I've had experience in other places in, in the world and been able to I've been able to translate that back to this store and been able to say, hey, if I was a customer, what do I want? When I walk into a store, do sometimes I want a cup of coffee. I want just a black <laughs> cup of coffee. And sometimes I want an espresso. I want a short ristretto shot of espresso with nothing else. And so how do I put that and give that to everybody? And But keep it simple. 
And we do a very simple way of doing that. I think that it's the customer that's not used to that. I think that there's some customers, depending on where you go, particularly across the United States, that don't understand why they're waiting two minutes and 34 seconds for a pour over when they can just get a cup of coffee out. Where's my, why is it not right? And we've had, a, our customers now have kind of helped each other understand that it's worth that wait based on the technique that's being used to put, do a pour over. We, however, do have a batch brew that allows the customer to be able to come in here on a commute and they don't want to wait and they just can grab their cup of coffee and go. Um, and so we've dialed that in so that it, as close as we can get to an actual individual pour over, it is, is what the batch brew will be okay. here. But I think it's important to have a larger spectrum of what a customer wants, but not go to the Starbucks world where it's like, I want four sugars and I want the syrup of that syrup and two, I want the Tarani, all the, and they're making their own drinks on the fly. Here, we don't have the time and we don't really have the patience actually to make specific drinks for specific people all day long so what we do is we create a menu that we feel is comfortable for everybody and has a, has a large umbrella that allows people to be happy in their choices and I kind of guarantee my coffee here like I, if there's people that come in here like well, what is that or why can't I have this or why can't I say hey try this if you don't like it we'll find a way to get you something that you like and that tends to work and I think it helps educate people on why do they like what they like. We've been accustomed to big, sugary, milky, gnarly, massive drinks. And when you go to Italy, you don't get that. You actually ha would have to go to a Starbucks somewhere over there and they don't have them. There's a reason for they don't have Starbucks in Italy. But the main thing is that you get something that you I can either learn to experience in a different way or you're a kind of person that can only have it one way and we try to help that person now. We don't we don't we don't want it to be like a convenience store of coffee drinking. We do we just prefer not to have it that way. And so that's just the barista needs to understand that. And the you know the as much as I do on the roaster, okay, the barista is vital right. to translating what I'm doing on the roaster to what the customer's getting. And so like I said in the very beginning, like my experience comes from the barista side of things and the front end where you're actually grinding the coffee at the grind setting matters, the temperature of the room matters, what type of bean it is, what, what, how dark the roast is, whether it's light, dark, that all matters when you're overworking as a bartender in a coffee shop, which is what barista means, is the bartender. Okay. So once you've got a good handle on coffee and understanding coffee, what coffee is, um, roasting then can kind of translate into this very, Cohesive. Uh, yeah, yeah, cohesive relationship. And yeah. when you have good baristas and you have a, a I like to say, a decent roaster, <laughs> the final product should be good. So it's, it's it just comes down to that. I've gone to a lot of places where the coffee's really good, but the barista messed it up. Yeah. And it's then I go back and look and see really and step take a step back to kind of look to see what that really is. And a lot of it is that there's not, the effort's not there to train the barista properly. Because if the coffee's good, but it comes out bad, yeah. that means that your baristas don't understand coffee that well. And if the coffee's bad, the barista's good and the coffee's bad, that's just straight bad coffee. Right. Uh, there's a saying, <laughs> you can make good coffee bad, but you cannot make bad coffee good. Ah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so having a good Arabica or having a good Geisha or having some type of high-end, high-grade coffee, decent roaster and a great barista you're on your way yeah great roaster great barista you're golden so yeah it's getting interesting it's an interesting business 
do you think the customer you said the bay area is pretty pretty good like they're pretty yeah, sophisticated they're pretty in hip. their palate but hip to it, yeah. do you think just in general in the u.s the culture the coffee culture has gotten oh yeah stronger i mean oh, over the yeah. years since you started oh yeah incredibly not just here other places too. Yeah. Like, i mean if you look at the australia's how quick they've come from being a place that really was more tea drinking based to like some of the top coffee places in the world the aussies are just insane in their coffee but yeah in america i think so you can see it across the country i mean if you go to like north carolina or you go to atlanta or you go to these places are still in the infancy stage of good coffee drinking but there are already some incredible places and a lot of it is that me and Pacifica, me coming into Pacifica and giving Pacifica a, a experience that you have to go to San Francisco to get. Right. It's similar to, uh, if, you, if you expand that to the, the America, okay, there's a lot of people that come from the Midwest to California to move here. They learn a trade or they learn an experience like that. And they're like, wow, well, I should bring this back to my home state. Yeah. So you're seeing this advanced coffee skills taking it back and opening up their own businesses in little rural towns and places where all of a sudden you got this third wave coffee shop out in the middle of nowhere it's awesome I mean, it's incredible to see that there's a, a documentary when i first got into this game it was pretty early on it's called the perfect cappuccino Ooh, check that out it's a doc documentary it's really good about and it's this girl got a grant she filed a grant to do a documentary on a cap cappuccino okay so she got money to do so then she went around and filmed and there's this whole battle between this little co coffee shop and um i don't know if it's kansas i can't remember where it was it's been a long time since i've seen it but it's this little coffee shop in the midwest and he gets sued by starbucks for double shot his double shot was right blowing up into this can of liquid cold coffee in the on the on the grab and go shelf and they tried to sue him and he this little guy has just decided he's gonna just fight him and he fights him. But the, the main part of the story is that but then it's like this this whole other thing about finding that cup of coffee in these places where you don't see coffee as the as it's more there could be some religion involved in that too is that coffee drinking isn't accepted in some of the religions and so some of the places that have those religions might not be so accepting of the coffee shop down the street just similar to alcohol but like seattle is one of the you know the originators of good coffee and what we see and san francisco has always been a coffee town since right. the 20s early early even the early late 1800s coffee was in san francisco you know folders hills brothers those places were here and they were making coffee so we have a very long history um and i think the third wave thing was kind of had to do with that starbucks did open that door up but starbucks was brought coffee into the limelight i mean it brought coffee into this idea that it can be more of a of a social you know and that a lot of it was that it was trying to bring that italian thing into america um and so the branding and all that exploded into that and so i think starbucks has given the platform for most of the third wave coffee um you know the rise of the third wave coffee and now we're going into way more fourth wave and stuff if you see like coffee championships you just go oh my god it's insane like just to, to watch coffee champion like barista championship what they create in this whole idea as well as the on the other side of the growing side of things like how napa's gotten to a point and sonoma county has gotten to a point where they're starting to use these techniques and all these anaerobic and aerobic types of processes in their fermentations and coffee's now taking that and doing the same thing with it and so it's really cool it's exciting i love it i mean it's fun stuff so it's kind of fun to come to work and be able to roast and have a craft 
but my family makes wine as well. So I've been in the, as a little kid, we were making wine. And so I've got experience making wine as well. And so I think this kind of translated into that. I was able to kind of take some of those, the understanding of that as a young guy and translate it into my, the skill sets that I'm using here right now. So it's fun. So as we were finishing up our conversation, Eddie started mentioning that he lost his sense of smell when he got COVID and that it impacted him greatly, both personally and professionally. I had a procedure done and I went, had to go into the hospital. And in that hospital visit, I got put into a room and the room had a couple patients in it that were suspect to what they had or what was going on in there. And my wife's a nurse. She was like, oh, I don't know, you know, this is not good for you. It's recovering from what you had to recover from. And so the day I got released, I think went home and she made me some soup or something. I couldn't smell it. And I was like, I can't smell and I was like, what's that? And she goes, oh, my God. She goes, I'm, I'm boosted. I got everything. I had every every shot you could possibly imagine from the for COVID. And, and then all of a sudden, I couldn't taste. I was like, I can't smell. I can't taste. So I tested. And I got the first test I took was negative. I didn't have it. I was like, oh, my God, that's weird. But I could not smell and I couldn't taste. And that's like one of the classic signs you have yes. COVID. So I was like, oh, this is not good. So then she said, we'll test the test again. And let, let me look at it. And there was a very faint line. And so she said, you got it. I think you got it. So I had literally got COVID from the hospital. And that was after three and a half years of being in the store and not getting COVID. And so I was like, this is not good because then I got an umbrosis. It affects your job yeah, it completely. completely affects. And it scared the living crap out of me because smell, taste, those are vital components in roasting. Without it, it's a done deal. You're not going anywhere without it. So I'd come in here, fire this machine up, and I try to smell, and I'm like, I can't smell. And so for about a week, I had to rely on my profiling and what was happening visually on my computer just to get by until I got done. Did you with have it. other people come smell? I did, but nobody has that here at this shop. Nobody's really got that Training, education right? yeah. for that yet. So I didn't really have anybody check. It just basically came down to after roasting, post roast is to make sure by letting these guys try it, whether or not it's on point or not. But I got scared. I mean, that was the one of the things is not it not coming back. Um, and so I looked it up and one of the things that you, uh, some people in the long COVID people have lost is the old factory, which is this term that I didn't had any idea about. But when I looked it up, the old factory is all about what you're, you as a, the you old factory correct, system. Yeah. yeah, the old factory system. You can correct me around, but it was like all the stuff that's locked into your yes. memories for taste and your your flavors and tastes is all locked into these little little compartments of the old factory. And I didn't know that, and so I was like, well, how do I? And so I started looking at how I'm going to get this back if it doesn't come back. Yeah, and it's like. That's what I do. Oh, you do I that. I teach people oh, who can't so smell. Crazy. Oh, my God, that's I, so crazy. I do smell training Oh, them. my God, I that's know, so crazy. I I, had I known, you could have, <laughs> yeah. you could have rest me assured that I'd be okay, but I was really freaking well, out that everyone. I had to go. I mean, it's a, it's a process. No, I got it's so scared. I, it's like actually worse than, I mean, I thought some pretty bad thoughts. Like this, without taste and smell, like what? It's pretty life's pretty boring to be honest with you i mean i got i got a little nervous and apart not just because of the business but just in general like i hear life yeah it's so safety it's, it's about safe. hygiene it's, it's about um, food what you eat yeah. it's so it's so it's weird that together. had it is coming back to that and so that you are interviewing me and i totally spaced out that <laughs> that was part of my little thing that was like that i lost my sense of smell and taste and funny enough when i tested negative my daughter who's 18 she has this very specific perfume and 
it's not like I don't like it. It's it's a little overwhelming for me, but I, it's not that I don't like it. But I couldn't smell it, and I would come home, and every time I'd come home, I could smell that perfume, and I couldn't. And so I was, I'd go into the bathroom, I'd like take whatever lotions, and I'd try to smell the lotion, and I just it keeps coming back. And like the day after I tested negative, I got this faint smell of this of her perfume, and it's I like said, "It's a door oh, opening." Yes, like the crack of a door opening. Yes. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I got, I just, all of a sudden I kind of relaxed. I was like, oh my God, okay. I think I'm getting my senses back. And it was just amazing. And then gradually, and to this day, it still hasn't a hundred percent come all the way. Um, there's times where there's this bland overall general bland sense of smell. Yeah. And then there's a couple things that were weird. Um, one of which is that there's this specific type of smell that I've never smelled in my life before. That's kind of, with me it's almost as if it's something that is either a new pack that's opened yeah, up yeah but it's not the most pleasant smell it's not horrendous but it's not the most pleasant and it bothers me it's like there's times where i'm just anywhere it's a little and parosmic it just, it's called where you have like a more of a burnt or like an off odor and off it's odor. just your it's um, your olfactory neurons are not completely fully yeah. rewired 100 percent. so it's kind of like a Wow. The misfiring of neurons. Okay. Wow, how cool. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's kind of, it was kind of like, so I'm thinking, is that what's going on there? I hope that's not something that's going to progress. You just have to keep <laughs> training. You just have to wow. keep smelling everything. Oh, that's keep so practicing. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah. It's been really yeah. interesting to awesome. learn, so thank I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.